going to be studying through Luke as usual, Luke chapter 6. This morning, we're going to drop back into the latter part of that chapter, into this first teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples. If you remember, we've said on a couple of occasions already that essentially the chapter 6 of Luke is Jesus' first attempt with his disciples to begin a discipling process, to begin a training process. Jesus, as we've said, has this unenviable task of preparing these 12 men, 12 basically unqualified men, for the task of laying the foundation of the early church. In one of the letters of the New Testament, it is said that Jesus, though he is the cornerstone, it is the disciples that actually lay the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of that foundation. And what that means is that the church exists because of the work of the early apostles, of the disciples, to begin the church, to begin the ministry of spreading the gospel. And Jesus knew that these were going to be the 12 men on which he would rest his church. And so the preparation he gives them is very important. But even as he's desiring to teach them about the mysteries of God, about all that God has in store for the church, about the end times even at different points in his ministry, he still spends much of his time, and particularly now in chapter 6, doing something very basic, simply trying to correct the disciples' thinking about what is true love, what is true righteousness. And as we said last week, he's having to unteach them as much as he is having to teach them. Last week, he had just begun that discipling process. As I said, he established, if you remember in the verses we read last week, up through about verse 26, that he was effectively trying to demonstrate that there are only two kinds of people in the world. We've said this here in the past. There are two different types of people, and they can best be illustrated uh, by the way Christ chose to do it in the first part of Luke chapter 6. There's actually an infinite number of ways you can illustrate the reality of only two kinds of people, Jesus chose some interesting ways in chapter 6. He says, on the one hand, looking at their dispositions, you have those who are satisfied by this world, those who generally feel good about themselves and their own achievements. They feel secure in their future. If you look in, say, verse 24 and verse 25 from last week, Jesus speaks of this group as being well satisfied, of laughing, of having need of nothing. And essentially, they're pleased with themselves. And by that disposition, they betray themselves. They betray themselves as lovers of self rather than as lovers of God. They have not experienced the saving sorrow brought by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They have not, therefore, changed from sons of disobedience into sons of God. They are, in a word, unbelievers. And these will have an eternity of misery as judgment for their unbelief and for living their lives in open rebellion to God, enjoying their sin, unrepentant and without a fear of God. That's the message we taught last week out of the first part of chapter 6 in Luke, where Christ says in what we commonly call the Beatitudes, that those who are happy here with this world now will only find out too late how wrong they were. And yet those who are sorrowful now over their sin, those who hunger for righteousness, this opposite person, if you will, who by the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of their sin has become aware of his poor spiritual condition, who weeps over his own sins, who's hungry for righteousness, as I said. Because he turns his back on the world and turns toward God, the world now hates him. But he will have his reward one day in the kingdom 
because he is now an adopted son of heaven. And so there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who believe in Jesus Christ and there are those who don't. There is no in-between. There is no third group. There is no other way to divide humanity. But knowing the difference, knowing that there are only two kinds of people, that's just merely step one for Jesus. He's covered that. We addressed that last week. But how, are one, how is one side, how is one group supposed to respond to the other? Specifically, how are the sons of God, the adopted sons of God, to respond to the sons of disobedience, to the unbelievers? Well, that's where we are now in chapter 6, verse 27. Here's what Christ provides. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Take a moment with me and notice a couple of things about how this teaching is fit together. First, I want you to notice what preceded these verses. We covered them last week, but it's important to see how they connect. Jesus ended in verse 26 by warning us to expect hatred. Not to look for praise as one of the disciples, but rather to expect the world to hate us. That's where he ended with last week. It seems that Jesus is now taking a moment in the verses we just read to explain how a disciple should respond to that very thing he said is going to happen. You would expect to be hated. You should expect to be attacked, not just for any reason, remember, but for the sake of Christ. And when those things occur, when those attacks come, now he says, love your enemies. Matthew's account, which we've on occasion gone back to as a cross-reference, you'll remember, in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's account of this same discussion stitches these thoughts together even better because he includes an additional piece of teaching which Luke chose not to include. In his account, Matthew records Jesus exhorting the disciples to remain salt and light. You probably remember these verses from some previous time of your study. He says, you know, you don't take a light and put it under a blanket. You set it out where all can see. And if salt loses its saltiness, then what value is it? You might as well throw it away. In other words, he wants us to understand, Jesus wants the disciples to understand that believing in Him and following Him, being a disciple, in other words, something we're all called to be as well, implies or requires that we remain distinct in the world. It is not sufficient that we become a believer, that we understand the truth of the gospel, and then we go back and fade into the woodwork of the world and look like what we used to look like, that we would continue to be may be mistaken for a son of disobedience, when now we know better. That's not sufficient. But then he says, to the extent you do that, to the extent you make known to people that you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be hated. You're going to find yourself rejected and hated by the world. And yet, and here's the key, and yet, that rejection, that hatred, cannot be our excuse to shrink back from our responsibility. The fact that we know standing out in the world as a believer in Christ will bring attack can never be our excuse for withholding our witness from the world. From failing to be light. From failing to be salt. 
because we have been placed in this world, because we've been called into faith so that God may work through us to save a lost and dying world. And as we see in the text today, Jesus is actually going to ask his disciples to go even one step further than that. And therefore, he's asking us the same thing. He's asking us for what many of us might have at first impression think is all but an impossible step. He's going to ask us to love our enemies. Have you ever considered why it is that Jesus' disciples, for that matter, us as well, why we will be hated? Why will we be rejected? Why do we have to stand out and essentially become a target to the world, if you will, in order to be a follower of Christ? Why is that a necessity? Why must our faith and our obedience in Christ result in the world hating us? Can't they just ignore us? Can't we simply have our view and they have their view and we just leave each other alone? You know the old phrase, can't we all just get along? Why does Christ say that can't be, that it won't be? The world, the unbelieving, lost world, they can ignore falsehoods. They can ignore a lie. They won't ignore the truth. The lost and the dying world is not threatened by a false faith. They're not threatened by falsehoods. In fact, they embrace them because they share many of them. They naturally love their own. Remember we read this verse at least a week or two ago in John 15:19. Christ said, if you were of this world, the world would love you because it loves its own. It's natural for the world to embrace falsehood because that's what the world itself shares. False faith, false beliefs. But the world is propelled by the schemes of the evil one, the scripture tells us. And he will always hate the godly because he hated God first. And now he takes his wrath out on those who represent God, the prophets, the disciples of the true living God, the believers in Christ. Remember, as I said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are opposed to God and those who are the adopted sons of God. I read an interesting quote on a website that I thought was particularly appropriate. gentleman said, every morning I wake up, I read the Bible and the newspaper because I want to know what both sides are up to. I think that's a perfect way to put it. There is the world and all they do, and then there is the world of believers and what God calls us to do. It is because we hold the truth. It is because we know the truth and live it out that the enemy wishes to oppose us and hate us. And the enemy is the power of this world working in the sons of disobedience, calling them to hate us as well. Paul says in Ephesians, we fight in a, in a spiritual battle. All that you see going, around, going on around you is directed in spiritual terms, either by the enemy, as God allows him, or by God himself. And here's the thing you really want to remember as we start to understand Christ's instructions as we read them today in Luke. The thing to remember is, You too were once one of these sons of disobedience. You were one of the enemy. At one time in your life, some day before you became a believer, I don't know if you had a conversion as a child, I don't know if it came as an adult, but it doesn't make any difference. It came at some point. And prior to that point, you were on the enemy's team. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in 2 verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, 
Among them too, all, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul begins by calling his readers dead. The word in the Greek, necros, where we get words like necrophilia from. It literally means a corpse. He says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses. You were a walking corpse. And he says, You walked according to the course of this world. Course, aeon in the Greek, it literally means age or from the beginning of time. You had a beginning from which you always walked as a corpse until a day came, he says, walking as the world had walked by the power of the enemy until you were called out by faith to remove yourself from that world and to enter into a new. And while you were in that state of a walking corpse, you were a child of the enemy. You were a son of disobedience. You were, by nature, he says, a child of wrath. So before we begin to look too much down on these enemies as we hear them described in Scripture, the first point to remember is you were once them. And perhaps still are, depending on where you are today in your faith. If you are a believer in Christ, you have made that trip already. If you are not, you are still a son of disobedience, as Scripture calls us. The good news is Ephesians 2 goes on to explain that it was an act of God's grace that changed us, that brought us faith and brought us into a new relationship with Christ to become a child of God. But now, knowing that, I want you to hear and understand the truth of Jesus' words, the words we've already read. If we have been born again by the Spirit and we are now believers, he begins at the very beginning of the, of the uh, verses in Luke saying this, But I say to you who hear, verse 27 we read this morning, in Luke 6:27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, and so on. To those who hear. Why does he start it that way? Is somebody in that crowd hard of hearing? Do his disciples not have the ability to actually hear or some too far away from him? Is that what he means? No, it's not what he means. He means for those who hear because of the influence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Not everyone can hear and understand the words of Scripture. Not everyone. The words themselves in English, yes, but the meaning, no. Only those who have the Holy Spirit teaching them the truth can understand the meaning of Jesus' words. He knew that then. We know that now. And so the enemy fiercely opposes those who are the sons of God because the enemy first opposed God himself. That's why we said last week, we rejoice when we're persecuted. When you're persecuted, you can rejoice because you know it's God's, it's proof that you are opposed to the enemy and you are a child of God. When the world opposes you, you're seeing proof yet again that you are a child of God. So a disciple must, by his nature, be hated. You follow that? If you are a disciple of Christ, if you stand out like salt or like light, you must be hated because you are surrounded by a world that is by nature opposed to God. You have essentially parachuted in behind enemy lines and dropped in to the midst of the enemy the moment you become a believer. And so if you stand out in that world, you will be hated. Now, what would the right military perspective be? If you were truly a parachuter in a military combat situation and you parachuted behind enemy lines, do you want to stand out? Do you walk around with your uniform in full view and a bullhorn announcing your presence? No, because you want to avoid 
the natural persecution, the natural attack that would come against you because you've joined into a fight. And that's what makes what Christ is saying here so nonsensical to us. He says, you will be a target. The enemy will hate you. And by the way, be a target and love them back. I'm not sure how I understand that, how that helps you, Jesus. How, how am I helping the situation by doing that? Is it that I'm going to win them over simply by being nice back to them? Is, is that how faith works? We're won over by favors? Scripture tells us that's not how it works. We don't create belief in somebody by being nice to them. Belief comes as a product of the Holy Spirit. And we're not in control of the Holy Spirit. So what is the purpose in being nice to people simply for the sake of becoming a target? Well, now Jesus explains specifically how we're to respond. Let's try to understand what he's telling us. He gives us several interesting examples in the text of how we may be mistreated and therefore how we should respond. He mentions being cursed. He mentions being struck on the cheek or having our possessions taken. There's a certain sense intended here in the text that I don't think is immediately apparent to you. I'm not sure if the full sense of what he's saying is probably obvious. So let me walk you through this for just a moment. Remember last week when Jesus said that we should count it joy when we are hated for the sake of the Son of Man, for Jesus' sake? We said back then that you can't simply count your misery as joy just for any reason at all. If you sin and your own sin produces a consequence that makes your life miserable, well, that's on you. That's on me. That's our fault. That doesn't count for joy in any respect. We haven't earned anything because of that experience. On the other hand, when Christ said, if for the sake of my name you have been hated, then count it as joy because your reward will be great. Persecution in the name of Jesus is reason to rejoice. That is the sense in view here in these verses. Who are the enemies of the disciples? We've said they are the ones who oppose God and his son. But a disciple is not to hold those things, those injuries against the sons of disobedience when they oppose us. Rather, we are to show them mercy and forgiveness. I want you to consider the specific steps Jesus says that he expects us to take. He says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Am I right in assuming that we're going to have some trouble remembering to pray for those we love? Much less spend much time in prayer over those who hate us? I think that's probably a fair assumption. What would you pray for? Think about that for just a moment. You have somebody who hates you because you're a Christian. They curse you. They throw eggs at your car. They break your window. They write terrible things on your sidewalk or painted on the side of your house or whatever you can imagine because you're a Christian. And then you see that damage and you walk into your house and you go down on your knees to pray for them as you're instructed to pray. What would you pray? I can hear some of us now, I'm sure. Sure, I'll pray for them. I'll pray for them to fall into a deep pit filled with rattlesnakes, right? I'll pray for something to come back on them. I'll show them. You know, praying in this sense, obviously, means praying with a heart for them, not against them. What would you pray? Or for the one who strikes you on the cheek. The word in Greek here actually draws a more violent picture than the way it's been rendered here in the English. The word for strike here, tupto, T-U-P-T-O. Tupto, if you were to look in Scripture to see where that word is used other places in the New Testament, it's the same word being used for how the soldiers beat Jesus on the way to the cross. 
It's the same word being used for how Paul was being beaten nearly to death by the Jews in Jerusalem. And the word for cheek, it literally is jawbone in the Greek. So we're here, we're talking here about a, a stiff punch to the jaw, not a slap on the cheek. We're talking about a violent assault. And when they strike you that way, you're to turn and show no resistance in the face of that beating, even giving them an opportunity to hit you again. We're not talking here about being passive, about refusing to ever fight back or something. This isn't a lesson in morality or self-defense or politics or violence in any form here. The message here is about how we treat those who oppose us. That's the basic issue at play here. How you respond to this hatred. And again, why would we do this? Why is Jesus asking us to do that here? How does allowing them to beat us up advance the church, advance the gospel? Jesus then says, when they take your cloak, offer him your shirt too. The cloak was the outer garment, the most valuable piece of clothing you would wear in that day. The shirt was essentially their undergarment. The thing we today would consider the underwear that you might have underneath your coat. It was of less value, but it was a lot more personal. It required a lot more of you to take that piece of clothing off your body than if you had simply taken the cloak off. The language here really suggests sort of a highway robbery. It suggests somebody standing you up on the side of the road and demanding your coat by force. And then in the face of that kind of a demand, somebody saying, I'm going to take your coat by force, you take the coat off, and then the next thing you do is say, would you like my underwear? That's effectively the picture being asked here. And obviously not in a lascivious way. The point is not because you're naked. The point is that you would go to that extent to satisfy their demand. But what's the point here? How come responding in these ways is a good thing for the disciple. Well, Jesus gives us part of that answer in verse 31. Some call this verse the golden rule. And it is. We've often heard it quoted, treat others the same way you want them to treat you, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, depending on how your Bible renders it. It is the golden rule. But this principle has actually been stated many, many times before Christ said it in the Gospels. In fact, a version of it can even be found in the Torah, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.18. But in every case before Christ, when someone spoke what is classically called the golden rule, it was always stated from the negative perspective. What you don't want done to you, don't do to others. That's the way you can see it found in many Eastern religions. Many religions that predated Christianity had a very similar theme. They all said it in that same sort of negative way. What you don't want to have happen to you, don't do to somebody else. Some call it karma. Some have other names for it. But it's all the same principle. The idea that if I do negative things to somebody else, then I will have negative things come back upon me. Christ, though, is the first to state it in a positive sense. Do something for somebody else. And do what you would want them to do for you. That's how Christ made it different. We all know this rule. We all understand it instinctively. We even teach it to our kids. Even unbelievers teach very much the same thing in their families, I'm sure. But if you examine the situations that Jesus just mentioned, the ones we just read, if you look at those carefully, you're going to realize that he actually goes a step further than the golden rule. He actually takes it farther than the normal place it's taken. When someone has punched you in the jaw, or when they have cursed you, or when they've stolen your coat, they've already done unto you. True? You've already been done, did, untoed. It's over. You've been hit. 
You've been cursed. They've taken the first step. They've already injured you. And your desire to have them do unto you has already failed. Your desire to have them do to you what you would do to them has already failed. They've already crossed the line. Now, aren't you free to respond in kind? Shouldn't you be free to respond in kind? They set the standard first. They did unto you. That's what the world would say. In Matthew's account of this same passage, Matthew actually begins it with a different verse. He begins by quoting an Old Testament verse. In Matthew 5.38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And then Matthew goes on with the rest of the discourse we've already read. Do you see how he starts it? He actually quotes from Exodus. Exodus 21:24. And this quote out of Exodus, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we've all heard that. The Pharisees and others in Jesus' day had actually made that their call to arms. That was one of the Pharisees' favorite phrases out of the Old Testament. It was the thing they most often drew upon when they were looking for ways to bring justice and to bring judgment against somebody. Whatever you've done, I have the right to return in kind to you, according to God's word, was the way the Pharisees would justify it. I've actually talked with people who, when they read the Bible, when they read the scriptures, they, they often contend with it because they say it contradicts itself. Look, on the one hand, God said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and now Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies. Person I know very well, dear to me and my family, when they read this and they tell me, when they read these, these differences and, and look at them and explain them, they, they explain it this way. You can't trust the Old Testament. There's no way that the same God of Jesus would be the God to write an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. It must be two different gods. You just don't pay attention to the Old Testament. You can't trust it. Obviously, what Jesus said is different. Is it? The point of Exodus 21 is not the point that the Pharisees made with it. In fact, the rule that was given in Exodus 21 was given to limit the retribution of men, not to endorse it. The point of Exodus 21 was to emphasize that men should seek to take no greater step in retribution than what was done in the original offense. It was much like the way Jesus responded when the Pharisees asked him if divorce was permissible. And how did Jesus respond to the question from the Pharisees of whether divorce was permissible? The Pharisees had raised this issue about Moses. Moses had made allowance for divorce in the culture of the Jewish nation by allowing a certificate of divorce to be granted to a woman from her husband. That a man could divorce his wife with a certificate of divorce. So the Pharisees turned to Jesus and said, Is it true that God would not allow divorce? Why is it that Moses gave a certificate of divorce then? How did Jesus respond to that? Do you remember? Jesus responded to that by saying, He gave that option because of the hardness of your hearts. The point being that God wasn't endorsing divorce, but He was dealing with the problem of men who would leave their wives for another woman, but not divorce the first one. Leaving this woman without the ability to get another husband and therefore a provider. She would become poor and destitute and die of starvation in many cases because no man would marry her as long as she was still married to the first. No woman could work to earn their own living, so she was absolutely without hope. The hardness of the heart of this man who would walk away from his first wife for another was so much that Moses permitted a certificate of divorce in that situation 
for the sake of the woman. So that the woman had some option. It was a kind, gracious thing for her. It didn't mean that God was endorsing divorce. Likewise here. God is not endorsing retribution when he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Rather, he's dealing with the sin of men by saying, at least I'll set a limit so that when you do act in retribution, you'll have a limit for how far you can take it. That's a far cry from saying, I want you to do that. No, Jesus said, love your enemies. Do not take acts against them. When they take something, give it to them and don't expect it back. Jesus refutes that principle. The golden rule, as we've called it, is not a two-way street. It is not doing to others as you want to have them doing to you, but when they do to you, you have the right to do it back to them. It's a one-way street. Their sin against you and I can never be our reason for responding in sin toward them. But here again, the question I keep asking, why? Why is it important to be nice to them? To give them that much latitude? Well, consider where Jesus goes next, and we'll have the second part to our answer. In verse 32, we begin reading. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Let those verses sink in for just a minute. This may come as a shock to you, but when you're nice to those who like you, to your family, to your friends, to to those here in this congregation, when you're nice to those people, you get no credit with God. None. Because you're doing what the world does. You're doing exactly what you used to do when you were still a son of disobedience. In fact, you're just doing what's natural for every human being, whether a disciple of Jesus or not. So why is it that you would turn to God today and demand that he show you favor simply because you do what is natural for all men to do? Is this just his attempt to make the world a nicer place? No, there's more here than that. There's much more at stake than that. Consider where this discussion originated. Jesus started by describing two kinds of people in the world. Then he said these two groups will always be opposed. One will always hate the other. And the one that is hated will be hated because of Christ's sake. But the disciple, the one who loves Christ, must remain distinct from the world, making sure that that difference is always pronounced so that they would remain a target rather than shrink back in the woodwork. And then when the attack comes, he says, we should adopt these ridiculous, senseless kinds of responses. These things that make no sense to us. Responses that could only come, in fact, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us to give us the desire to do them. Because we'd never think to do it ourselves. That's how we're supposed to respond. And we only get credit. We only get credit as a disciple when we act in this counterintuitive way against our enemies. Because even the unbelieving world likes to love their friends. And then he adds in that final piece I read at the very end in Luke 6, 35 and 36... 
He finally puts it all together for you so that you can understand exactly why it's important that a disciple respond this way. Jesus says we do these things because our Father in heaven is kind to ungrateful and evil men. We should be merciful as our Father is merciful. I don't think you can really grasp the enormity of this at first glance. Paul expressed it this way in Romans. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Well, perhaps for the good man, someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know if when you've read this before that any of us have truly understood what Paul is saying, but maybe I can help you with that now in light of what we just read in Luke. God in the man Jesus Christ looked across all eternity as only God can do. All of time was before him, before and after. All of humanity was before him. And he looked at all of humanity and they were all enemies. They were all sinners. They were all opposed to God. They all were haters of God, to include him. And then seeing all of humanity of all of time hating him and being his enemy, he then chose willingly to let himself be killed on their behalf, on behalf of the sins of the world. So, what that means is, he saw you. He saw me. He saw us, not as we are now. He saw us as the sinners we were, the disobedient that we were, the ungodly that we were, the haters of God that we were. And then he died for us while we were in that state. So, when our Lord was paraded before the authorities on his way to the cross, and they spat on him, and they cursed him, We were there. We were in that crowd spitting on him and cursing him. And what did he do? He blessed his tormentors and he prayed for those who cursed him. And when Jesus had his clothes ripped off his body, we were there heartily agreeing with that violence against him. And Jesus gave no resistance and let them take everything. And when the guards struck him on the cheek and drew his blood, we were the ones throwing that punch. And yet Jesus turned the other cheek. And he did those things so that he might go to the cross sinless. You see, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he was dying for your sin and for mine, even as we opposed him in the moment, even as we were his enemies. And if he had not done that, if he had stopped, for example, and resisted those who would try to curse him or spit at him, if he were to resist those who were trying to take his coat, if he had resisted those who struck him, he would not have been doing his father's will. He would have been opposing the father's plan. And what is it we call it when we oppose God's will, when we don't do what God wants us to do? What do we call that? Sin. Had Jesus opposed his tormentors, had he opposed his attackers, he'd have been sinning. If he had sinned, then his death on the cross would have done us no good then there would have been no atonement. His death would have been for his own sin. Think about that. Be merciful because your Father in heaven was merciful to you under exactly the same conditions he's just outlined in Luke chapter 6. Why do we not strike back when we are struck? Because Christ didn't do it first because he had to do it in order to be sinless. 
and we do it as well, so that we may be sinless like our Father. This is why Paul goes on to say in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. So now I ask you, how do you pray for those who curse us or hate us on account of Christ? Well, I would argue you pray for their salvation. I would argue that you pray for them to know the truth. I pray for the Father to open their eyes as He opened yours. And when they strike you because of your faith, why do you turn the other cheek? Or when they take from you and they borrow and they take advantage of your Christian generosity? How many of you have had that happen in your life? Where because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit within you, you have a natural generosity now to give of what you have to others, but there are so many people willing to take advantage of that to make you actually regret your generosity at times. That's what Jesus is talking about, right? Because your Father in Heaven has already given us so much, we don't think of that being taken advantage of as somebody getting away with something. We understand that we've been forgiven of so much more, we could never dare complain of injustice against ourselves. We could never complain of anyone owing us anything in comparison to what we've been forgiven by God. And because... We are to be merciful as He was merciful to us. Remember, the sons of disobedience who oppose you in the name of Christ will one day receive the full payment for their sins. While you and I, we're going to go free from any punishment for sin. And therefore, we have no basis on which to argue with Jesus when He says we're to show mercy to those who oppose us. Because all He's asking us to do is exactly what He did for you. That's all. No more and far less. As disciples, our priority is not serving our own interests in any event, just as the disciples in Jesus' day were being prepared to give their lives to the establishment of the church. We may not have to give our life in a literal sense for the establishment of the church, but come on, really, what kinds of sacrifices are we talking about in most cases? A little of your time? A little of our effort? Maybe the chance to risk some embarrassment from time to time in sharing Christ with a stranger. That's really all he's asking. He'd love to get a lot more, but he often gets much less. And by our actions, when we follow these instructions, when we actually go out and make ourselves a target, not in a prideful way, simply by standing out for who Christ is and what he's doing in our lives, when we bear witness to Him, to our enemies, and we become a target and we're attacked because of it, perhaps in that opportunity of turning the cheek, of letting someone take advantage of us, that difference will give them just a moment to pause and wonder, what's different about you? Why are you not striking me back? Why, when I borrowed that tool and lost it, did you not get upset at me? In fact, you let me borrow another one anyway. Why, when I said mean things to you, did you still come back and smile at me? Perhaps that will be the basis that God will use to persuade somebody concerning the truth of the gospel and the power of it, the reality of it. We'll end there today and I pray that as we go out of here, that as you've learned from Luke today something of what Christ did for you, that you'll have an opportunity to use it. That somewhere in your walk this week, I pray that God will give us somebody, maybe just once, somebody 
who is a son of disobedience, someone who is ungodly, who does not know the truth, and who hates you for what you believe, I would argue that Halloween is a wonderful opportunity for perhaps that very event. And in that moment, you can remember Christ's words out of Luke chapter 6, and you can stop short of what might have been the normal natural response and say, no, here's my opportunity. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to smile in the face of persecution. I'm going to give them something to think about that's different than what they get from the world. And maybe God will open a door for me to bring the gospel message to them. That is what discipleship is about. First and foremost, representing Christ in the world. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you for the gospel message yet again, for the word written before us, but mostly, Father, for the word made flesh. Your son, Father, came to this earth and died on that cross, not simply, Father, so that we might see an example of how to live a godly life, though it was that. But, Father, he came and he died on that cross in obedience to you so that our sins may be forgiven. And now, Father, as we stand before you and sit in this room, our eyes closed, our heads bowed, Father, respectful and mindful of the presence of the Holy Spirit here even now. We pray, Father, that we would all have accepted that sacrifice, that we would have believed in that sacrifice. I pray, Father, that there would not be a heart in this room who does not truly understand that apart from your Son's death on the cross, we have no hope of eternal salvation. We have no hope of forgiveness because we could never do anything worthy enough of that forgiveness. But, Father, your Son did all that was necessary. He calls those who follow him as his disciples to live a life that's pleasing and reflective of his work in this world and on the cross. Not a work, Father, to save ourselves, but merely a a work, Father, to reflect the saving that you've already done on our behalf. I pray every heart in this room, Father, would understand that. I pray that you would convict those who may not know it and help them see the truth, help them embrace the truth, Father. For without it, all are lost. And I pray, Father, that you would use the men and women in this room in the week to come, that for someone somewhere in this city there would be an opportunity to share the gospel on the basis, Father, of turning the other cheek, of showing a love, a mercy that we were shown even while we were enemies of yours, that we might in that small way begin to repay, if it were even possible, all that you've done for us. Use us in that way, Father. And then, Lord, if it be your will, we pray that we would be here again next week to continue our study, that you would guide our steps in the week to come, make opportunities available for us to to live out the gospel message, and then organize our schedule, Father, so that Sunday morning would bring us right back in this room. I pray for those things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.